This episode is brought to you by the Inspire Collection by Kalia. Just because you're working out doesn't mean you shouldn't look fabulous. The Inspire Collection by Kalia was designed with both style and performance in mind. It looks good, feels good, and stays put no matter how you move. And the collection has everything you need for a day at the gym. A support bra, crop tanks, bike shorts, amazing leggings, and more. It's their most versatile collection yet. Shop the Inspire Collection by Kalia now, exclusively at Dick's Sporting Goods. The Pod Fix Network. Hello and welcome to episode 226 of the Filmmakers Podcast. This is a podcast where we talk filmmaking, from indie film to studio films and everything in between. How to get them made, how to make them, and how to try not to F it up in our very, very humble opinion. Today on the show we have the fantastic director and writer Ben Wheatley. Oh yes we do. Ben Wheatley's latest film In The Earth is out now do go see it it is brilliant and he shot the movie during the pandemic ben wheatley is known for the movies down terrorist kill list sightseers a field in england free fire happy new year colin bursted high rise rebecca and in the earth He is an absolute delight and it was a joy to get him on. Thank you very much, Christopher Taylor, for setting it up for us. You start. Ben dives into how he makes his movies. He talks about how he went from short films and commercials and online virals. He talks about pre-production and production. Why do storyboards? Why he doesn't like the read-throughs or rehearsals? He also talks about pacing, camera angles, editing and the difference between indie films and studio films. He also talks about working with Croon, why he hates musicals, what directing is like, and we go in-depth into his latest movie, In the Earth, which he shot during the pandemic. Well, I suppose he shot and released it during the pandemic. Myself and Dom Lenoir had a brilliant chat with him, and that is all to come for you on this week's episode of The Filmmaker's Podcast. I am Giles Alderson, and I am currently sat in my caravan, yes, caravan, in Suffolk, in the rain. Well, I'm not in the rain, the caravan's in the rain, and it has just been announced. Uh, I am currently two days in to the feature film, which is called... Wolves of War. It is a drama set in World War II. By the time you listen to this, I'll be four days in, or more, depending on when you are listening to this. And I have to say, it's going really well. I'm really enjoying it. The crew have been incredible. My cast are incredible. And as it has been announced in Deadline this week, I can tell you, my cast is... Ed Westwick, star of Gossip Girl and very recently Enemy Lines. Matt Willis, who starred in Allies and very recently Madness in the Method. We've also got the amazing Rupert Graves joining us. Now, Rupert, you'll probably know from so much TV, but very recently Sherlock Holmes, he plays Lestrade. We have also got the fantastic Sam Gittings, who was the lead in the feature film Break recently, which uh, Terry Dwyer and Dean Fisher were the producers of, who produced my last film, A Stranger in Our Bed, which is in final stages of post, by the way. Excellent news. And we have the fantastic Jackson Booz, Anastasia Martin, Eva Mann, Magia, Maximilian Hildebrandt. I'm so over the moon with how it's going. Honestly, it's always so nerve-wracking, the first day. 
It is. Even Steven Spielberg says that when he goes into shooting his latest film. He's nervous. I was nervous, of course. But you've just got to embrace it. You've got to power through. And as long as you've done the prep, as long as you've really dived in there and done everything you need to do before you get to set, when you get there, you can throw it all out the window because it's in your brain, your shot lists, your storyboards. Yeah, obviously you're following them. Obviously you're telling the team what you're doing. But when you get there, you can change it. And you can change your mind and you can adapt. The actors do something different. The light does something different. The room is different how you remembered it on that recce months ago. And there's so much you can play with. And that's where I love being on set because it's fascinating. You suddenly go, how are we going to make this movie? How is it actually going to happen? And then suddenly your actors turn up and then they look amazing. The costume's done an amazing job. The makeup looks incredible. The hair's all been cut. They look World War II. They look like they're in the movie. They're, it already. And you rehearse with them. You're like, okay, well, we're rehearsing. Let's talk through the scene. Let's rehearse it. Block it out. Brilliant. And you talk with your DP, who's my, the fantastic Stuart White. It's looking incredible, by the way. And next thing you know, you're going, cool. All right, let's start this position here with a camera. And turn over. And my, and my ace first AD, Joe Stringer, goes, are you ready? Okay, let's roll camera, roll sound. And Giles, take it away. And I go, and action. And it happens. It happens. Movie making happens. And suddenly before you know it, it's the end of the first day and you've got this amazing footage in the can. I'm really happy, honestly. Um, I won't bore you too much with it now. I'm just kind of, you know, on the ride. I'm in it. I'm in the trenches, literally. <laughs> and it has rained the first couple of days. But hey, what would a movie be? What would a movie be with me that if it wasn't raining? <laughs> and I didn't expect it. Kind of a lot of people have only brought shorts. Uh... <laughs> but anyway, we dive in and we get on with it because we're movie makers. And I hope you're inspired enough to go make yours too. Because you can do it. You can make it happen. But anyway, like I say, I don't want to bore you too much now. I will fill you in more on this as we go. Probably more from this caravan right here so let's on the caravan park <laughs> uh, so let's dive in this is the episode uh, which I can't wait to, for you lot to hear it is with the amazing Ben Wheatley he is a huge inspiration for me and many other filmmakers of someone who just goes out there and does it so sit back relax and enjoy this week's episode of the filmmakers podcast with myself Dom Lenoir and the brilliant Ben Wheatley hey buddy how you doing very good thank you man how are you I'm good. Good, good. I loved that in the earth. Thoroughly freaked me out. And my debut movie is also proper freaky. But this one sort of really sunk into my skin. It got really under there and it just hung in the air for ages. And I thought, oh, I'm not going to be able to sleep properly. I need to read something a bit lighter. It's great, mate. It really is. It's this psychedelic trip that just goes on and you're like, where, where are we going? What's happening? What's, and I, I just thought it was brilliant brilliant filmmaking very you you know it very sits into your wheelhouse of what you make but I also thought it was like an extension of what you do so yeah really nice how do you feel about it now how do you what's your you know obviously because it was something that you said you know you from what I've read and please tell us otherwise you were sort of in that moment where you sort of pandemics hit everyone's sort of struggling um Tomb Raider's maybe falling down at that point you're like right what do I do and you went I know I'm just going to splurge something out there is that kind of what happened within the earth yeah but it's the same as the other films to be honest it's the same as what happened with the field in england and with colin bursted they're not similar scale movies done over a similar amount of time you know so usually it's just a the ebb and flow of what happens in a year where if there's a big movie coming and 
then it doesn't happen for some reason, then you kind of go, okay, well, you can make something else. You know, so it's not as unusual as it was is kind of being talked about. You know, it's not a you know we would have made something that year anyway. Whatever happened, I'd have thought. Yeah. Yeah, I thought so too. Because that's just you. You know, you're prolific. You know, I think this is like the ones in the first year that you might not have made a film as well. You're that prolific. You seem like you're, you know, you're constantly working. Yeah, trying to. But you wouldn't ask that question of a bus driver, would you? You know, you're constantly driving buses. I can't believe it. You're always up to up some kind of bus action. <laughs> There's always wheels turning on that bus. There's a song about it, I'm sure. I'm the same, mate, when people say, oh, no, you're always working, you're always doing stuff. It's like, yeah, yeah, I want to get shit done. So, no, it's great. Yeah, well, I mean, I generally write stuff for me you know and I'll, if i want to see a film i'll write it and then i'll that'll be the action of living inside it as you write it is you know it's that's there's a lot to be said for that and i kind of i wrote quite a few scripts during lockdown um i didn't watch much stuff i couldn't face watching other people's stuff but i kind of just went into writing all sorts of different genre things and odds and sods and, and then i started talking to andy stark my, the producer that i work with on uh, rook films and, and we kind of just started saying, oh, they, we've we had this scheme that there would be a moment after the lockdown where people would be, there'd be a, about two weeks before uh, the jobs came back. So we figured we could probably make a film in that period. And that's, that was the plan, basically. We went, oh, what have we got? And then, it, then there's like pragmatic stuff about, oh, you know, it had to, to be safe. It was most likely to be something set outdoors. And then, and that would make your life a lot lot easier and so i did have a script that was that luckily so i've been thinking about pragmatic like a pragmatic horror film in that respect but also i've been looking at stuff like the halloween schedule which we'd found mm. online and we were looking through that and going oh yeah you know it's like it's not it's like 17 18 days i think halloween yeah but you shot in 15 right yeah, but I mean, that's another thing. Where there's a lot of, you know, a lot of kind of talk about how short the shoot is, but it's not really. I mean, it's if you think about like what genre movies and B movies were like in the sixties uh, and seventies, it's about right the right length. I mean, I'm not a, a, a kind of B movie shoot would go from about. Think three days, isn't it, for Gun Crazy, and then it goes up to about kind of fifteen days. Is like the longest you'd get for something, and then a, then a Hollywood movie would be a little bit longer, be like six, but twice as long, about six weeks. Yeah. But that was, you know, it was unusual to shoot longer than that. And so if you got something like I don't know, Shock Corridor, I think he's eleven days, you know. Yeah. Um, yeah. and some of that Corman stuff was over a weekend or five days. Yeah, so totally, it's doable. I never, I never think about it in terms of that being no. a, a restriction. Were you sort of conscious? I mean, because as soon as lockdown came, there was, there was a lot of people uh, thinking, let's make a COVID style film. I mean, something that was really exciting about your one is even though it kind of covered that territory, it still very much felt like a film. It didn't feel like a lockdown film. I mean, the locations you used, it, it never felt like it was sort of enclosed or inhibited in any way. Was that sort of part of the, the process in, in trying not to fall into that trap? didn't really think about it to be honest i didn't even think there would be this conversation about covid films you know but it, it i think that the zeitgeist was it was an interesting in an interesting place at that point it's like anything you could think of was literally happening around you instantly you know so if you went oh you know i want to buy some loo roll that'd be a good idea everyone <laughs> had bought loo roll and equally if you're thinking oh i'll make a film about covid oh i'll do it on zoom mm. it wasn't an original idea because everybody was thinking that exactly the same time you mm. know so i think that that side of it but also like the idea of horror and genre 
it's about metaphor to illustrate your life. But if you're making something that is exactly what's happened, there's no metaphor in that. There's no illustration. It's just something mm. you, that everybody's got an opinion on as well mm. and knows as it literally happened to them. So that was that would be problematic. I'd never think about it in that way. I mean, in the same way that we had, like I was going to do this zombie thing with Channel 4. And as soon as this COVID happened, I was like, we all chatted about it when we can't do it because it's just too close and it's too much like what's happening. So why would anyone want to see it? Mm-hmm. You know, um, and so we stopped working on that straight away. And I think it had, there is that issue with, it is an issue for genre that we literally lived through a horror film and, and we saw what would happen, what was true about the horror films that we'd seen before, but what yeah. also wasn't true, you know. Mm. So yeah, I thought that was quite interesting. I definitely agree. I think people have sort of held back on doing too many sort of, hey, we're in pandemic, but some have come out and done really, really well. Um, and I think, you know, even though yours is not... Uh, a pandemic well it's a pandemic film but it's not based on our pandemic that's happening right now it's based on just a really cool idea how did you go about shooting that then what's your process as a director to go okay this is my schedule do you jump straight into sort of storyboarding do you jump because i know you've been talking a lot about that at the moment with uh, meg 2 that you're doing and i wondered if you do the same with your indie films did you start doing that with down terrace for example or have you changed as a director in terms of what you need to prep boards are only worth doing if you control the environment that you're in mm-hmm. because if you can't control it why are you drawing it because you're never going to be able to make those shots happen films where i haven't got any control over the environment i tend not to board so or that are in any open spaces like field in england was there was kind of no point boarding that i might do a, like a light shot listing or something for that and the same with sightseers was done like that just like shots i'd like but not necessarily boarded and then I could be more flexible on the day um in the earth was the same because there's no point you know we were we only wrecked it twice and it was it wasn't gonna it's not that kind of film it's not a gripped film either so you're not going to be having like developing shots and people moving around it's much more kind of you live in the environment and then you you work out what that's going to be you know, you set the camera positions and then you then you block the actors and that's it. And that's something I'd learned from doing stuff like Ideal and television work, you know, where you've thrown in at the deep end and you've got to just block like 10 people in a room and you've got half an hour to do it kind of thing. So, yeah, but on other movies, yeah, I've completely storyboarded them, every frame of them. And, and, and I think it's a really great way of, certainly with a film that costs a load of money, it's the way of seeing the film for the first time with the cheapest amount of money. And often I'll draw them myself and then look at them and, and I'll be able to see enough in them to be able to project myself into the film and see the film more clearly than if it was just imagining it in my head. But then there's another stage where professional storyboard artists will come on and redraw my drawing so they're a bit clearer for everyone else. Yeah, I don't know if you can draw. I can't draw. Have you become better at it then over time or is it just necessity? Well, the thing about boards is that some storyboard artists don't draw uh, draw things that can't be shot. That's what I found over time. Mm. And that you can also yourself draw things that can't be shot. It's just you you draw it, you're conveniently drawing people in a space which they'll never be able to get into or like you're not allowing for the lens in a way. So so you can end up with a load of boards which are less than useful, you know, because they, 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 they make giving you a false confidence about what you're going to be able to shoot. When you get there, you go, oh, I can't get these three heads in this configuration. It's just not going to happen. And, mm. and then it throws you completely. So... I've done a lot of movies where you where you roll with it on the day a bit more and that's fine as long as you don't lose your nerve, you know. 
And that can happen. You can just be confused. And how much do you do you go into the rehearsal process um, and, and sort of adapting what's on the page versus on on set? Do you do you like to sort of just block it and and see what happens, or do you do you like to keep fairly to the you know what you've planned on the acting side, I suppose, and the, the dialogue? Well, the dialogue it just depends on. Most of the films I've done, there's been no rehearsal for, so there's no time to rehearse. You can't get the actors together to rehearse. I've been on films where you've done a read-through, which has always been a disaster, you know, because a script is such a horrible document. It's not really made for that kind of situation, so it's just like a terrible radio play, and people lose confidence in that. And then, so I tended not to do any rehearsal for a long time, but then recently, I think on Rebecca, we did quite a lot of rehearsal and that was quite useful, you know, for, for the script. But then it wasn't my script. When it's my own script, I'm more like, oh, I'll fix it on the day. If I need to fix it, I'll see it. And I keep, I'll play it until it's right. You go, oh, that, that's not, that phrase isn't working or this feels phony. And then you start to, to strip it out. But I tend to think of rehearsal as, or have thought of rehearsal in the past as lost performance you know you kind of go oh the rehearsal was really good and then you go just do it like it was on the rehearsal and it never happened you know so i think that that's the difference between theater and cinema you know in that respect that you can lose the spontaneity and lose the urgency of the performance by over rehearsing is it the same way with the camera then as well again you can necessarily over talk it through sometimes with your dp here is it a case of again you're finding it as as you go or uh, again you've totally planned it to into, into its life and then you throw it away and play on the day it's similar to your actors is it the same well it depends what it is it's like you know if you've got like the coen brothers movies where they are very tight to the boards but they must have an incredible or Spielberg stuff, we must mm. have an incredible kind of internal perceptual idea of space to be able to do that. Because oftentimes you get to the set and the movement you are going to do is too slow or it doesn't quite, the beats that you wanted, to, the, the changeovers in the blocking are not quite working. And they, all these things have to be kind of honed on the day to make them work. So you would never, I would never be able to do that in terms of like, I'd make a blueprint and then it just gets made. And then also that doesn't allow for the actors to bring stuff to it. But I can see there's a type of filmmaking which does allow that if you're like basically a genius like those people are, you know, you you would be able to, you must be able to hold it in your head and see it and know the timings and then go and execute it. I mean, Hitchcock's the same, isn't he? It's like much more planned and then it's very, very super specific what the stuff is. But I find it's more of a kind of a, a mix of those two positions of like going out you find it, find the truth of it on the day, but you know you've got a really good idea of what it's meant to be. It's really interesting that you you sort of mentioned pacing and, and timing of actual, you know, how long a camera angles to, uh, you know take, because it's not something we we necessarily go into uh, too much, but it's it's incredibly important and it's it's a really fascinating thing. And I and I suppose when you're sort of shooting a whole bunch of coverage and you've got loads and loads of angles to to play with you've got a lot more options in the edit if the scene is running a bit slower or a bit faster than you intended but i suppose if you're if you're going for much more long dolly shots etc and you've got specific ideas for those kind of things you you've kind of limited your options in the edit and you have to think that stuff through very carefully uh, for it to to work out otherwise you're you're kind of a bit stuffed i suppose yeah i mean the thing is it's like what you want is a master shot that does the whole scene and that you don't have to have any coverage you that's what you want that's the ideal but that doesn't allow for an issue with performance which might be a slowness in performance that you don't spot on the day or a weakness in the script so if your script is perfect then you you're in much better position to be able to do this stuff and also if you're there's an issue with like timing on the day and timing in the edit suite where you what you can 
succumb to as a director on the floor is theatre. Um, and you think it's really good what you've just seen, but what you've seen is theatre and it's not cinema, you know. And when you get it back and you go, oh, yeah, the performances are great, but Christ, it took them 10 minutes to walk across the, the room. And then it's like, oh, God, it's really boring. But it wouldn't have been boring, you know, on a room above a pub when you went to see it as a play. It would have been Absolutely. amazing. But now it, now there's a problem. So the, the goal, I think, is always to try and do it in in a single shot. But the insurance is the coverage. But I tend not to cover for, you know, the TV coverage, which is like three sizes on everybody. I tend not to do that because that then grinds the performances into the ground. And also the editing, That's the, I feel like that's the, you know, they talk about the difference between television and film. And that kind of is the difference is the pacing of and the air around performances as opposed to the iron grip of control of the cut, cutting on lines and cutting on emotions to construct a, um, a story which is usually weighted towards producer-led or, or writer-led filmmaking. Mm. Mm. What about emotional performances? Uh, do you like to do those, say it's, that someone's got to cry, would you go in for a close-up first? Would you go in for your moving master first on something like that? How would you plan to do that? Well, I don't know. I think you'd be a uh, dangerous game to be kind of getting an actor to reset you know, in that respect, to have a complete breakdown in one long take and then mm-hmm. think that you're going to get another version, another thing that's the same of that, you mm-hmm. know. So you'd probably, I mean, you'd either do it so that you were going to do it in a, one or two takes because that's probably all you'd get anyway before you'd rinse them totally. for the day, mm-hmm. you know. So it's kind of, I don't know. I mean, it, I've done crying stuff before and it, and it, apart from anything, if they're doing it right, their faces got all puffy after the first take. So it's kind of screwed. Yeah. That's fascinating. Rebecca, for me, I loved the opening shot was like a dream and I thoroughly enjoyed because I knew then what kind of film I was watching. Do you kind of think about your opening shots with all your movies in that way or would, is it just what happens? And again, when you get to the editing room, things change. I don't know. I, I guess so. I mean, I, you know, obviously I've drawn them probably by that point. Mm. Um, but sometimes what the what the opening shot is going to be is not necessarily what it is by the time you get to the edit suite. Yeah, it's kind of 50-50 really. I, I mean, really, it's more this, is that you have the grace period of about 20 minutes at the beginning of the film, which is, you know, it's hard to screw the beginning of the film too badly because people are are on your side, you know, they've come to see the movie. But the rot sets in in the middle, and that's when, you, when you're the most dangerous part of a film because it's you're dealing with a much longer longer stretch than you would do with a tv show you know you're already into the 40th minute 50th minute and it's like um, and you're dealing with several strands of story and how they're kind of coming together and, and pulling through so that's a more worrying area that that sag and then the end of it which is like the out is the most one of the most important things because it's basically what sets people's opinion on the whole film you know mm, that's what we people are left with isn't it the out and that's the thing they can remember the most about any film the rest of it could have been turd but if the ending's amazing you know people go away with going yeah it was all right it was cool you talked about editing do you find that's made you uh, easier on set because you like you say, you, it sounds like you were editing uh, in the earth as you were sort of filming it that night. Have you found yeah. that editing has made you a better filmmaker? Has it really helped with the vision of what you want to do? In the earth was in the was cut in the evenings, but free fire was cut on the floor. You know, as the shots wow. were shot, it went straight into the edit, and that's the best. And so was Rebecca, and that's the best way of doing it because you know you have no. It reduces conversation. You know, you don't. No one. Someone goes, well, I don't know if you've got that, and you go, well, I have. Here it is, and they go, oh, okay, <laughs> the end of the conversation. You know, as, yeah, as opposed yeah. to the mystery of, oh, have you covered it properly? It's like, well. Unless, well, now we're going to have to get all the rushes out and look at them to see. Yes. If yeah, so, yeah. But editing, I come from an editing background and 
and a post background and it, and yeah it, it certainly calms me a lot and it means I can shoot a lot quicker than I would do if I was if I didn't know how to put a scene together you know so I cut it in my head as I'm watching it if I'm not editing it at the mm -hmm. time and I can I know when it's you know I can be pretty confident that I'm I'm right and I've and I can move on in a way that I heard, you hear stories of people just covering and covering and covering stuff and just not not being sure that they've got it you know mm. and my my attitude is usually it's like a kind of I'm, a, I'm a, I gather the rushes, so I'm like I'm watching a take, and I'm going, oh, that first 40 seconds is all right, the middle bit's great, and the ending's not what I want. But then take two, the beginning's great, the middle bit's no good, and blah blah. blah. And once <laughs> I get to the full thing of it all working, as long as I'm not shooting a one-er, yes. then I'm like, okay, then we can move on. And everyone, and sometimes you get people going, really? Well, but I mean, there's another there's another school of thought which is like the complete perfect take every time, or they move towards that perfect take. But I think that that causes problems with tiredness and, and actors working at different speeds and all these things. So you don't, I, that, that seems to me to be a luxury to be able to do that. I mean, I think, I think having a good script supervisor is, is very, very important as well. When you, when you're sort of focused on the takes to, to have that second opinion, um, you know, it could be your DP in some occasions in, in terms of uh, whether you've got the right parts of the take on the different takes. Um, and, and making those decisions before you sort of move on. Um, just go back to your audience expectations. How do you sort of plan your, you know, in terms of if you're sort of setting up a certain expectation, do you do you tend to just go with your own idea of an ending or do you sort of pay much sort of attention to audience expectations for genre and that kind of thing? Depends what the film is. And, you know, I've done films that have been screen tested and, and the information back from those is interesting, but generally it's just your own taste. You know, you kind of, you have hopefully making the film that you want to see, you know, and you trust your own judgment. It's kind of the job. And the idea of like going out and asking loads of people is kind of an anathema to that because it means you don't know what you're doing or you don't understand what, what an audience wants or you don't understand what you want yourself. So I, I'm, I'm kind of, I'm not one to, I'm not one for screening it loads or screening it to like executives loads or, or any of that stuff. It's kind mm. of, and a lot of the earlier movies weren't, weren't seen by anyone really like one or two screenings and then they were done. Mm. I mean, in the beginning, like Kill List was virtually finished. You know, it had all the effects work done. There was no rough cut screening or any of that. It was all, it was the final version of it was shown. I mean, Sightseers was different. There was a problem with it in the middle and it had to, we did one day reshoot to glue the two halves of the film together, which was, we'd seen that from our own screenings that it worked and then it stopped working. We are like, why is that? And it was just a bit in the middle that needed sorting out. So but the other films are pretty much been exactly how they've come off the, out of the edit suite. That's fascinating. Um, and what about when, in terms of the difference between indie films and studio movies, if you like, then I like say maybe going back to in the earth, we're sort of going back to your indie roots in a way, in terms of, like you say, with Sightseers, Kill List and Down Terrace as well, which is all just fabulous films, by the way, honestly, you, you, so cool. And I like that there was no interference. Because sometimes there can be too much interference and it can be annoying. But but the difference between studio and indie and just going out there and doing something, is there a difference for you? Do you prefer it? You, it sounds like you like to just sort of, I can get on with this on my own, thank you. Is that how can you set out your store? Oh, well, there's, it's, I mean, this is something realised quite early in, that the genre itself is not necessarily about content. It's also about budget. And like a budget at a certain level is a different film entirely from a budget. A small, it's not like you have a sliding scale where you start with indie movies and you just apply 
what you've learned from those as you do um, films with more and more budget. It, has, it certainly hasn't been that way for me. But I've also done, I've made adverts and television at the same time, and they're very different from indie filmmaking in, in how the hierarchy works. So the te- television hierarchy is the producer and the writer and maybe the actor, and then the, the director and the DOP and the editor are almost at a kind of a, a, a similar level in terms of their influence over what, what how the show is made and everybody has to respect all the all the notes that are written there's no kind of going i'm going to do it my way it's like you're part of a you're part much more part of a team in that respect advertising similar where you're you know you're below a client and an and the agency and then you you give you're given an awful lot of rope but you're also you don't have a final say on anything you know you're just you're there doing your your craft job which is fine which is great and the studio is a similar thing it's like once the money once a certain amount of money has been spent you can't treat it in the same way as you would do um a low budget thing because it's a totally different situation you know so then you have to kind of i think you basically just have to work out where where you sit in things quite and then so that you don't end up in a it doesn't end up really uncomfortable basically so you have to know where you where you are and i I suppose on on sort of higher budget studio stuff there's a lot more transparency required from from their end you can't just sort of get on with it and say yeah it's all fine you have maybe you have to do a bit more prep stuff and showing what you're you're doing and it's more like an ad in that respect that it's it's negotiated and you or you know you wouldn't go off and madly do something well you couldn't i think it's that compression of script you couldn't get away with which you do on an indie thing of, that you've written yourself we you just go oh, i'm not going to do that but even at the lowest end of the budgets they would be i mean we did some stuff on kill list where we rehearsed it a rare bit of rehearsal like the 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 on the Friday before we were going to shoot on the Monday, we didn't like it and rewrote it over the weekend. And so when the when the film four got the rushes back, they were completely different from the script that they'd signed off on. And at that point, we didn't even think that was a, would be a problem to anybody. But of course, it's a terrible faux pas, you know. But we thought, well, it makes the film better, so that's all right. But you know, they they but they signed off on that, so therefore they're going yes. But that's my decision. I signed off on it. I, therefore, you're questioning my abilities right in some way well, no, I mean, it's just that it's just the process isn't it if you you paid for something and now you're not getting it back yes yeah but it's something else you're getting and so you have to be are you happy with that or not oh my god you know so but that then that can't can't slightly fixed for sites where we just went in the mission state i wrote a mission statement for it saying i'm really excited about improvisation i'm going to do loads of improvisation and Clever. so the yeah. rushes were never the same for that and there was right. hundreds of hours of them, so no one—I don't think anyone sat through them or watched them at that point. No. Uh, and by that point, you'd already established yourself as, you know, Ben Wheatley film. People kind of knew what they were potentially getting at that point, right? I don't know. I don't know if that is ever a thing. It's like it, no? it's more likely. It's like it all, you know, power will be filled. If there's a vacuum, it will be filled by someone. So as long as you're always going, I, I know what I'm doing, and I'm going to do this, then you're all right. But as soon as you don't say that. No matter who you are, it will suddenly be filled out with somebody else coming in and sorting that. Yeah. Well, how have you? Like, well, maybe let's just jump back because you said you started off doing commercials. You were doing internet bits and pieces that actually some of them blew up, which is fantastic. And then you did some TV for a bit, and then you said, "I want to make features." Was it was always it always kind of your desire to make features? Was there a film that inspired you to want to do that? Yeah, I mean, I always wanted to make films and. I'd wanted to make them since I was a teenager, but I just didn't know how, you know. And mm. I think that the 
the world of, you know, there was no books, there was nothing. I didn't think you can get into the National Film School until you I think it's still the same. You can get into your 25 or 26. Yeah, yeah. And, uh, yeah, I remember shooting stuff on a video camera and not even realising you had to edit it. You know, I didn't know that was what, what, what you did. So it just took a very long time to work all that stuff out. But film-wise, yeah, I don't know. I watched a lot of movies in my 20s and covered off on as much of the Hollywood stuff as I could going back to the to the 30s and then a lot of French new wave stuff and neorealism and, and German uh, new German cinema and stuff so and then British uh, 60s and 70s stuff as well so you know I'd watched a ton a ton of stuff and then I just kind of stopped and I think it was like you, you're basically I found that once I got to 30 it was a lot easier oh, really oh yeah. how come just well, because no one takes you seriously until you're a bit older so and and I had to calm down a bit as well so it was kind of <laughs> So, and then Down Terrace was a film I was trying to make before I was 40. You know, that was the, the aim. You know, yeah. I took about 10 years of kind of making ads and doing TV and whatever you could get your hands on, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah. And yeah. then yeah. that got, because I always figured, yeah, I'd need, wanted to learn as much as I could about every part of the production side of it, having known nothing, you know. So then it took that long to basically learn it, I think. I think that's a, a good amount of time as well. And people do jump in and it's great. They jump in, but your due diligence, you know, go on, help other people, hold a boom for people, you know, go do the art department, whatever it is. Cause the more you learn about that, the better I feel you become as a director. I think it's really important to just yeah. do that. As long as you can understand a department in some yeah. degree, even if you don't fully, un, you know, fully comprehend the details. Yeah. You can't fully do it or not good at it. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. Technical knowledge of, is super important and it, I've been getting a lot of questions about you know the bu budgets of stuff and mm -hmm. and is it, how, what's it like working on a low budget but the flip side of knowing how everything it works means that you can make movies that back into any budget so you're never making a low budget movie you're only ever making a film that's for the right money yes and that right money can be yeah. 10 grand or mm. or 500 quid but it but you still have made design the film that will you can make it for that amount of cash yeah, I agree with that. Yeah, that's 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 really cool and true and very true. When Down Terrace happened, did you manage to raise them again? The same thing. Did you manage to raise the money yourself? How did that actually come to fruition? Because you know, even you know, we're two thousand nine, wasn't it? So you're probably shooting in two thousand eight, two thousand seven. So how did it then? Did you manage to raise the cash to do this? And I can't imagine it was massive amounts. Well, it was six grand. There you go. Yeah. And it was two grand each. So from Andy and Rob Hill and me, so we just put two grand each in, into it. And I actually got the two grand back. Did you? Six months ago. <laughs> yes, <laughs> it works. It works. <laughs> yeah, 10, well, 11 years in, there, it, it broke even enough. Wow. I mean, we paid back all the, because we did it as deferred payment for the crew. Mm -hmm. um, and then we sold it in America and in the UK. And the money that we sold it for paid off the deferments. So we were really God, happy yeah. about that, and that that was that was job done as far as we were concerned. But we were still owed; there was still six grand owing on it. But the deals the deals we signed at the time were so onerous that even though I don't know, it made a couple of hundred grand at the DVD and Blu-ray sales by that point. No, just DVD sales, I think, at that point, mm. and whatever they've got for um, TV uh, rights or whatever, TV yeah. and all that. Mm. So it made a ton of money, but we never saw any of it because of the way that the deal was structured, and until you know, now we've gotten back some money. Yeah. 
isn't it amazing how important it is to even understand those deals? Because when you're a filmmaker, you're like, please take my movie, you know, get it out there in the world. That's all I care about. But actually, your movie did really well. And at the time, you probably could have done with some of that money. I and mean, obviously, it's over the time as you've grown as well as a filmmaker. And therefore, people are looking at your first film as well. Yeah, I mean, I think that the, it's the most expensive film school is making a film, you know, you you and, and the most effective film school. But yes. you make yeah. the movie and then you and to go through the sales thing on your own, which we did, and we did the international sales ourselves as well, wow. was was like, um, it opened up a lot of, or it shone a light in a lot of corners, which we never would have seen into, you know, and, and, mm. that, and as it went on over the years, we've understood how to do it, hopefully better, you know. Yes. Yeah, well, yourself, Andy uh, Stark, you've worked with on pretty much as many films as I can see, <laughs> you know, from the beginning till till the latest in the earth. And Amy Jump as well, your wife, you've you worked with a lot, you write with a lot. And I think that's lovely that you bring your teams up together. I think it's really important you start off together and hopefully you can keep those relationships going that you can continue because why wouldn't you, right? It's hard to forge those relationships in this industry. What do you think a key advice would be to doing that, to keeping your crew on side so they will come and work with you again. If there is one you have, I thought it'd be really interesting from your side. I don't know. You, I mean, you're basically a rule of thumb of just, it, it's easier to work with people you work with who are good. Mm. So why wouldn't you work with them again? You know, and the idea of trading up or whatever seems a bit odd to me always. That was, that was nothing, that was something that never kind of crossed their minds. And we were making things outside of the system kind of anyway, you know, so making them at such a low budget that you needed to have that shorthand amongst the crew to, to be able to get through it within a frictionless way. You know, we, there's never, there's none of that kind of low budget aggravation, onset aggravation kind of stories that were never on any of the rook shoots. We always got on really well. We're all friends, you know, so it never, it never came up that there was screaming fits about not having enough money or working too late or any of those things. Cause it was all, we were very conscious about, how far we were, you know, what we were doing with the crew in that respect. Gosh, how embarrassing. It's Robbie. I know what he gets like if, if I don't answer. Bear with me. Sit there uncomfortably a minute. Robbie! Hey, Charles. How's it going? I'm in the middle of an episode. Uh, I had okay. to answer to you because, you, you know. I'm calling for some advice. Well, you know, as they say, at first you don't succeed. Maybe skydiving isn't for you. Yep, good point. But please, ask away. Charles, a lot of people don't know this, but... Um, I'm actually, I'm actually friends with the Man of Steel himself. What, Mister Mister Kal-El. What Superman? Yeah. Are you? Yeah. From Krypton. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, the man in the the red, red and blue with the with the S logo. Yeah, he's he's, he's quite a guy. Anyway, he has this issue because he's absolutely useless on uh, Friday evenings. Right. But I think it's got something to do with his Bitcoin class that he goes to, his weekly Bitcoin meetup. Really? Yeah, you see, Giles, it's um, it's his crypto night. <laughs> crypto night. Such a big build-up yeah. for it. Testing. <laughs> but contrary to popular belief, Robbie, cryptocurrencies are not stored in crypto wallets. There's a fact for you. They're not? No, the only things that are stored there are the private and public keys. The funds are recorded on blockchain. They can only be accessed by someone with the correct public and private key. Yeah, I'd better tell Kal-El I might fix his problem. It really might. And if he signs up now with Coin Corner and uses the voucher code FilmBTC, he can get his Bitcoin journey started with some free sats. That might help his crypto nights. <laughs> well, I will let him know. You do that. And, and Robbie, you shouldn't go around telling people this. 
Why? Do you, do you not know how Superman gets out of dangerous situations? No, no, no. Tell me. Because he always has an escape. His cape. He wears a cape. Escape. <laughs> with an S on it. And here is my escape. Bye, Robbie. <laughs> how did Warp, like say, with after Down Terrace and getting Kill List going, was that a case of Down Terrace had done well enough for you now to reach out to other companies and did Warp come on early? Was that the case to get your second film made? Because that's always, a, we have a lot of filmmakers who do listen who might have made a film, but they struggle to get the next one made. Did you have a specific tactic? Well, we'd been talking to Warp for years, but not being able to get a meeting with them. But then it was, if I remember, it was like film four match made, made it. So they went, they'd seen that the film had won a load of stuff and we had a conversation with them and then they introduced us to Warp. And then they said, these, but, but that's basically going, these are the people who are going to look after you when we finance it. So that we're I not going to we're not okay. going to give you the money on your own because we don't know you, but we'll put it through warp. And at the time, there was a, a digital film thing that they were doing where there was like seven or eight movies that were funded as part of a, a, a set of films that were co-funded by Studio Canal at the time, I think. So yeah, and so we met up with them, and then it was like, what do you want to do? And and they and I said I had three scripts at different budget levels, and then they said, oh, what's the cheap one, basically? <laughs> so when we did, and that was Kill List. The right. Kill List had been written like only about, I'd written it over the Christmas. So, um, and we met them in January. So, wow. It's so, fresh. Yeah. Well, it was, yeah. But I had to, you know, I kind of pretended I'd been working on it for years. And then, it was, <laughs> as we do in this yeah, industry. <laughs> yeah, and that was it, really. And I think it had one more draft and then we shot it. So, it was all super quick. And you can see that in the way the films are released because it was like, 2000 and you were saying before was was down terry shot in 2007 no it's shot in 2009 you know it was oh it's that quick wow 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 and into the festival bang 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 like that you know we basically were doing one a year for about six seven years but also doing tv so i think doctor who at the same time and mm -hmm. and ideal as well you know yeah I mean, I say it's prolific at that point. Did you feel that, like, say, was was there a lot of people knocking on your door during that time? And how did you manage that and the expectation that kind of comes with being a successful indie filmmaker? Because you were. I mean, your name was all over the place back in the sort of the tens. Yeah, I, I didn't really think about it. I mean, we just went from job to job, and there right. wasn't lots of stuff coming in. It was I went and did all the you know the general meetings in Hollywood and stuff, mm. but that nothing ever comes of those things. So it's kind of, it's much more of a longer game of like a five or six year game. You didn't really think about it. I mean, we were just expected to fail at every point. Really? Yeah. I mean, and I don't know why you wouldn't think that. It's always, it's a gamble, the whole thing. And like the, the after the reviews we got for Down Terrace were completely unexpected and they were so good. We thought there's no way we'd ever get them again. And Kill List was really on a knife edge is whether or not people thought, you know, what, that it was going to be all right or not. And I always think of it in terms of the enemy, you know, it's like the enemy will always like promote a band and then destroy the band like the next album. And it was, yes. yeah, we football was the same. Yeah. each time, you know. Mm. And what's your kind of process for selection of, of projects in terms of what comes to you? Is, is there is there things that you've that have come to you and you just thought it's a great opportunity, but it's just not really me or? I make extreme decisions on you know, if I think I shouldn't be doing it, I do it. So I've done that a right. few times, but then other stuff is just you know, you make, you write scripts and you see if you can finance them. And if you can't, then they don't get made. And that's more, more that pushes it through. So there's no, obviously there's no plan about what, 
the what the films are that get made or you know which is always the thing i always find amusing by the critical reaction to stuff of like you know they're saying that there's a connection between the films but the connection is can they be financed you know (laughs) (laughs) which does make sense and what about in terms of the writing then of those said projects in terms of how do you go about like say where does your idea come from and then how do you sit down to write it do you do you scriptment it do you stick notes up your wall how do you do it or is it different every time uh different every time but i mean generally i I do it as a list and then i write and then you just grow it basically and you just keep writing it rewriting it reading it writing it and reading it and it and it just slowly expands into the script Mm. Um, sometimes you tempt dialogue written in blah 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 or whatever and then uh, when i'm writing properly writing i'm note it in the morning and then write then write back the notes into the script in the afternoon and then maybe put aside some time for doing some dialogue like if it has to be really pulled out of nowhere you know Mm. because that's the thing that, that tires me out the most and then once that's all done i shred the script and then i start again the next day so right, right, you just because I've heard this and I didn't know it was actually true. You'll shred it like the whole thing, so it's gone, and you'll start yeah, again. Paper, paper. Yeah, I've got it on the computer. Oh, okay, but good. So it's not. But, it's completely. Completely. But, it, but you know, you you basically otherwise they start piling up all this paper all over the place. But I can't. I find it very hard to. I don't like scrolling, so I, I, it just fucks me up if I have to go up and down the thing looking. So I'll lay the pages out and then I'll write on the backs of them. Mm. I remember when I first started writing, I was writing plays at the Royal Court and I had one of those old, ridiculously heavy typewriters that I pulled around everywhere. It was an electronic one, but it only had three lines. So when I was, I went, oh, I've written this bit. Does it connect to the scene on page 23? I'd have to press the up button or down button for ages. Did, 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 get there and then go all the way back. It drove me insane. So I totally hear why you go, let's print it out. I can look through it. I much prefer yeah. holding something in my hand. It's, you can it's better. cut it up and you can jump it about and it, yeah it's much more tactile and they use paint you know lots of colored pens and stuff but yeah i mean and it but more of it is that being given, being given the space to sink into it and like mm. just spend time in it and think about the, how the characters talk to each other but writing i find more is like is an is a is management of a kind of um writing dysmorphia you know you kind of i, I read my stuff and i can enjoy it but I haven't necessarily written all the right words into it at that point. It could be in quite a jaggedy shorthand and it's picking that out and recognizing it because you give yourself the benefit of the doubt when you read your own stuff back. And it's finding that is the hard bit, I think. And how soon do you give it to someone like Amy or Andy or whoever else you're potentially is your producer on that? How soon do you let someone else read that? What an early draft, draft one, draft 26. Yeah. I mean, yeah, usually as soon as it's written, yeah okay and then and then it just depends because it depends what it is i mean i've written plenty of scripts that no one's interested in within the circle of people i work with i've just go no we, this is shit or <laughs> we don't like it and it's well i'm not interested in that and that's fine you know and then you just stick it in a drawer somewhere and kind of you know some stuff comes back eventually you know yeah and the, the difference between in your career between the genres of films like i say rebecca was i'd have never said you'd make rebecca but like from what speaking to you now and what you say you go well why not and totally now why not and i love that i love that you're going well no i just want to make films that appeal to me is is there a certain genre you you like is there a certain genre you go oh i haven't done that i'd like to do that at some point and if so why i don't know i mean i'd like to do it all really if i can i mean the only thing i'm slightly reticent about is musicals because i i can't stand them 
but in a way that means <laughs> I love them. <laughs> uh, I, I fucking hate them. But it's like what? But then what makes me think why? Why and why? Maybe I should. Oh, interesting. Okay. But, um, but yeah. yeah, but maybe I'm right about not wanting to do them. And, and how, do, how do you kind of feel about animation and and you know the Marvel universe and and that kind of territory? Is that is that got any appeal to you? Well, I mean. Animation does, yeah, definitely. I'm a massive comics fan, and I have been since I was a little kid. So I, mm. I, my my relationship with the Marvel movies is quite odd because it's everything I always wanted. It's all the comics I read being remade into into films. So you know, it, it's interesting. I mean, but would you do? Would you do? Is that something potentially one day do a Marvel movie, do a an Avengers seventy one, whatever they, they want to do next? Yeah, I don't know. I think it it, it depends what's left i mean it's been kind of rinsed so it's they will start again i guess but yeah back to back to the first one back to yeah. iron man reboot um and bringing it back to uh in the earth because that's what mainly we're here to talk about the cast you've got is incredible i joel fry is just someone i've i've really respected for a long time and it's so great to see him do this on a on a big scale like this in terms of one of your films in in that way and again reese shearsmith again jump in one of those where you go because I love Reese's work, but on on this, he's just, I love his the sort of the stillness and the quietness. Um, you know, Hedy Squires is in there, Elora, Torture, and just just some brilliant actors. Is that something you, like say with all your films, you sort of find these and you find people who are really feel like they just get stuck in and get on with it, but also deliver these heartfelt performances. Is that something you sort of pride yourself on? Is that something you look for when you're looking for actors? Well, I don't know if I find them. I mean, they're they're, they're usually pretty well established. These people, and sure, and, sure. and I'm I'm just happy that they'll do the job. Yeah. You know, yes. so, but you know, Joel Fry was interesting because I'd worked with we both done our first jobs together pretty much. So he was in Wrong Door. Oh, he's in Wrong Door, right? Of course. Yeah, um, yeah. Which a lot of the people I've worked with again have all been in Wrong Door. So I met, I met Neil Maskell on Wrong Door mm. and Anna Buring, Michael Smiley, and all those. Basically, the, the cast is a bit like the crew in that respect. That you, you know, when you work with people who are great, you always got an eye, mm. eye half an eye on them to put use them again at some point if you can, if they agree to do it, and you can tie them back into something. So it was that piece part was written for Reese. Nice. I, I definitely wanted to work with Joel. And I've been thinking about him for a long time. So that kind of made, and that, that was naturally, you know, it came together like that. Yeah. I mean, sometimes it's like Asim um, Chowdhury, when we, when I worked with him on on Colin Bursted, I did, I'd done an advert with him like six years before. And I always wanted to work with him again because he was so brilliant in the advert and then yeah. didn't realize, and I had his email address over from that ad and we'd been emailing backwards and forwards. And the lot, I thought, oh yeah, what's that guy called? Oh yeah. And I saw his email and it was like, oh, we're just going to do our own TV show. I was like, yeah, whatever. And he goes, do you want to be part of it? I was like, no, I'm not, you're all right. And then, and then when I got back to him, it was like, fucking hell, you know, he'd, he'd won a BAFTA and it was, you know, he was actually a big star. People do so. nothing. Yeah, it's brilliant. Yeah. It's so good. I love that he asked you to be part of that. And you're like, no, nah, mate, you're all right. Because the thing is, you were probably getting lots of those offers from actors or from creators. I think I was, I was busy, to be honest, yeah, but it yeah. was, you know. Yeah. And how do you like to work with actors then in that sense? Do you like, do you, uh, what, what's your process with them? Do you, do you dive into a uh, character? Do you talk about, and again, we talked a little bit about this before, but maybe on set on the day. A lot of directing for me, the skill of directing is casting a lot of the time. So, which is a hoary cliche, but it's kind of true. So mm. you can't, and if you've written specifically for someone, something's gone really badly wrong if they don't. Very true. It entirely, you know, so. Or, or it's just exciting to see what they're doing, you know, and you just go, you just let them get on with it. But I think, you know, on a very basic level, like directing, 
is a bit like giving directions, you know, and I always find that if someone talks, if I'm asked to go somewhere and someone talks too much, I can't remember what they're saying. Mm. And, uh, you know, it's too much direction, too much direction. I'm like, oh, all right. I say I end up just going, taking the first direction, which is like up up the road on the left, you know, and, and then I'll, I'll ask someone else when I get there. And I feel that too much talking on set like that, people can't remember what you're saying anyway, you know, and it and it's confusing more than than it is helpful. Mm. So my direction is much smaller. You know, it's more like encouragement or just, oh yeah, that was great or faster or slower or bigger or smaller or what's the top of it look like? What's the bottom of this look like? And trying to make an environment where you can't make a mistake for the the performers don't feel like that they're being judged. It's more that it's an arena to try out different types of performance and then they trust me that I'll pick the right one in the edit. I think that's a really interesting um, approach. And I, I think one of the most useful things that I, I ever heard as well was, you know, I only give like one or two bits of direction because as soon as the actors are trying to remember like, five or six different micromanagements of, of you know one one sentence they're back in mm-hmm. their head and they're thinking about the line rather than doing yeah. the, the line and also you get and i learned this early on with commissioning graphic design work where i got these really working this company got this really expensive design company went over there and i told them what to do you know and i told them very specifically what to do and what i got back was what i said and it was shit. And it's like, and it was because I'm not a famous, expensive graphic designer. I'm just a bloke. And like, right, if I right. if I get a really brilliant actor and I tell them very, very specifically exactly what how I would do it, then I'll get back a Ben Weekly performance. And I, I don't want that because I, you know, I'd probably be in the films if I was an actor. But then mm. good at it. That's an interesting yeah. idea. And it's, it's the clues in the name. It's directing. It's not telling. You know, mm. that, that's the main, that's the main thing. I love that. And I couldn't let, we can't let you go without talking about the Meg 2, the trench. Uh, you're about to go off and start that, is that correct? Yeah, I mean, it's starting to be in prep soon, yes. Great. How, is everything going well for it? Are you excited for this? Because I cannot wait to see you do uh, uh, the Meg 2. I think it's going to be brilliant. Yeah, I'm really excited. I mean, it's the, for me, it's like a different muscle. So it's kind of more on the free fire side of things mm-hmm. than it is maybe the what in the earth looks like so it's kind of it's just massive amounts of action and fun and you know and working with Statham so I'm kind of it's all on both sides giant sharks Jason Statham very excited yeah brilliant 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 I can't wait well Ben Wheatley thank you so much for your time In the Earth is out now thank you so much for your time yeah thank you it's been brilliant honestly really appreciate your time is there anywhere uh, people can find you on the socials I'm sure they're already following you anyway but it'd be really nice to shout that out now there's a bit of Instagram maybe, but it's not very interesting. (laughs) (laughs) There There we have it, it, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, Ben, thank you so much for your time. You've been an absolute star. Appreciate it a lot. Good luck. Cheers, guys. Thank you. Cheers, Ben. Thank you. Bye-bye. Have an excellent time. So, so thank you so much for listening this has been our episode with the amazing Ben Wheatley uh, remember you can go out there and make your indie film just as Ben Wheatley has done and if you're lucky enough to rise up it is your duty to send the elevator back down yeah now say it with that feeling like you mean it send like the, the elevator. elevator back down if you like this which I'm sure you did then tell your pals help us grow and if you really like this go on iTunes and give us a 5 star review and if you really really like this come and join us on Patreon and be part of the team uh, link is in the show notes to that amazing Dom you're a star thank you for doing this with us no problem we will see you all next Tuesday take care you little legends bye bye <laughs>